the water, the breathable air, right? The contamination control, the protection and health concerns, the nutrients, all of these things aren't specific to space. They're specific to us as the human. Greetings, Earthlings. Take me to your leader. Better yet, take me to the leader in you. Today's Earthlings podcast topic is the perfect Venn diagram of space and climate. It fits right in the middle. The company we're going to talk to today and the female CEO behind it have basically created that, um, you know, those recyclers and the big spaceships and sci-fi stories um, where like the characters, they just throw everything into the recycler, food waste, um, clothing, people, I mean, just everything. And everything gets broken down and then reused throughout the rest of the ship. Well, they have created this for our planet. So I'm very excited to talk to them. Before we get to that, my name's Lisa Ann Pinkerton. I am your host and I run Technica Communications, which is a PR firm for companies in the clean tech space. I support all genders in this space with women in clean tech and sustainability. And I'm going to be coming to you every week on this podcast. So thank you to Resource Labs for having us um, on their network and uh, welcome all Earthlings who found us through them. If you'd like to support us, you can follow us on social media, comment on our stuff, let us know what you think. Uh, we have a Patreon page now, so you're welcome to support us there as well. Uh, share the podcast with your friends and family. Let them know about uh, the stories here that you've enjoyed or don't. You know, we appreciate you just the same. Thank you for being one of our listeners. Um, okay, back to the topic at hand. Um, now, a lot of technology has been spun off from NASA over the years. I think starting in 1967, um, these uh, spinoffs, as they call them, um, started spinning off. And um, you've probably used some of these products, memory foam, um, LASIK technology that optometrists use now. It wasn't originally designed for that, but that's how it's used today for, you know, here on Earth. Um, let's see, solar panels, solar cells, right? Uh, transparent ceramics are now uh, invisible braces. Um, the list goes on and on and on and on, right? And the benefit to society is just almost incalculable. Uh, but after meeting today's guest, I think you might think they were thinking too small. Uh, my name is Brittany Zimmerman. I'm the CEO and founder of an organization called You May. Uh, I spend the majority of my days uh, right now looking at how we can build a sustainable life in terms of modern civilization and be really proud of the type of world that we can hand over to the next generation. That was Brittany Zimmerman, and she's the CEO of Yume. That's the company that has created this planetary recycler for our collective future. And it can take in all of these waste streams, like wastewater, um, uh, agricultural waste, landfill waste, and break it all down to its molecular level and output beneficial resources like green hydrogen, uh, clean water, a low carbon cement, a green cement, all of these things that we need for our spaceship Earth. 
In my specialty, my specialty is bioregenerative physiochemical hybrid life support systems for long duration space flight, which is just an obnoxiously long title to say that I really bridge the gap between how we develop technologies um, that utilize nature-based solutions and also using a more traditional engineer's approach, right? And so when you start taking a look at the types of technologies that we have to develop to make sure that space travel is survivable, and then you start looking at the way that we live, live our lives on Earth, you'll start seeing some really big you know, correlations in terms of the things that are necessary, right? The water, the breathable air, right? The contamination control, the protection and health concerns, the nutrients, all of these things aren't specific to space. They're specific to us as the human. And so we can actually translate a lot of the technologies that we're developing for outer space back to Earth, right? And, and they're very applicable here. We have, we have issues here with access to clean water, right? Food security is a big issue when we look at nutrients, right? Um, we look at air revitalization, right? The climate issues that we're facing right now are because of different toxins and greenhouse gases that are being put into our environment here at the planet. And sure, we may have designed these technologies in a space, you know, for space specific applications, but I really think it's those harsh environments by which we're innovating in and we're building our requirements in, right? And we're developing these solutions in that actually lead to some of the really, really cool solutions that we most likely would not have arrived at if we weren't put in the situation where we had to innovate for that. And so since we've gone through the effort of doing that innovation, really what I'm looking at now, right at the stage where I'm at in my life is really how do we leverage then those technologies, not only for the space travel and the space flight, but then bringing those back here to use them for human betterment terrestrially. So then mm -hmm. the amount of technologies that we're developing um, constantly is just, it, it's so much. There's so oh, I can't even begin to imagine how much is being designed. And I, I like what you're saying there about, I mean, because of course, necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> and so you have all these very, um, yeah, all these constraints, resource constraints, and 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 just a very harsh environment up there in space, uh, forcing us to innovate in these very specific ways. And I like how you're you're taking that to the next level to say, look, we don't want to wait until um, necessity becomes the mother of invention on planet Earth, because yeah. once that happens, you know, we're shit out of luck. Yeah. And so we need to we need to plan ahead. We need to be proactive. And and so you're thinking ahead now at how to to transition some of these technologies. Can you give me an example of one that you are transitioning or you have transitioned with your company? What we're doing is we're bringing in greenhouse gases as a feedstock. Um, but think of this as things that would traditionally end up at a landfill, right? Our waste metals, plastics, glasses. We work with uh, effluents, right, or sludges coming out of uh, industrial processes or wastewater treatment facility centers. We work with construction waste, so demolitioned concrete, right, lumber, things along those lines all come into. We, we take in agricultural waste. Really, you'll see that different communities produce different types of waste, right? And so each of the different feedstocks that come in, we do, we break them down, right? So um, I'll give an example, right? So CO2, for example, if you bring CO2 into a system, um, that CO2 is only a toxin because of the bonds that exist. We can break the bond between the carbon and the oxygen 
and now we have oxygen, which we love, and we have carbon in its gaseous state. If we were to release that, it would, you know, go back into the uh, environment. It would make more of the greenhouse gases we don't like. So that's really what we do. And, and so we've really looked at mother nature, right? So biomimicry for anybody who's unfamiliar with that term is really the mimicking of bio, right? You know, we say, okay, mother nature breaks waste down and over geological times, mother nature can translate that waste into, gosh, she makes minerals, she makes soils, she makes atmosphere and she makes water right, out of this stuff. And it's like, okay, how can we then take these puzzle pieces that we've now built, right, and put them back together in a way that creates those things? Because those seem useful for us. And that's why you'll see the four products that we make fit into those categories, right? Our net negative alternative to concrete is, right, is a mineral. We're producing a mineral that just happens to be extremely useful to humanity for a lot of our development and infrastructure, right? But we're doing it in a way that makes it non-emissive, utilizes the waste that exists on the planet currently, and also is producing something that's good for us. So it's really cool because right, every ton of it we make, we remove more than a ton of greenhouse gases, and we're all really happy about that. And then we make our soils, right? Our soils really, the, the it, it's technically a soil amendment, right? It's a sustainable alternative to fertilizers that does some really fantastic things for rejuvenating the majorly depleted lands across the world, right? And it also helps with the water issues too. It actually acts as a scrubbing agent for a lot of agricultural runoff. So, you know, you've got like a million benefits to utilizing biochar and it's been utilized by, and we didn't invent that, right? And indigenous groups right. have been utilizing biochar for thousands of years. So this yeah. is just yeah. a product that we're producing um, because, of, because of its massive benefits to environment and because of the types of feedstocks that are coming in. And then we end up with water and hydrogen that are really left over from that, right? And so water is really fantastic as it's a resource that's needed all over the world. I mean, it's really becoming the resource, you know, that most people I think are paying attention to and are concerned about for you know, the mm -hmm. existential, the next existential issues that we face uh, as a society and, a, and as a human race. And um, we found ways to both desalinate, right, in this process uh, and do wastewater treatment that can produce potable, clean drinking water and agricultural waters with no brine production, no effluent. So that's been really, really exciting. Um, and then what's left over after all of that is hydrogen, right? So uh, for us, right, at first we're like, okay, is this Green a waste hydrogen stream? Too. Yeah, is this a waste mm -hmm. stream? No, it's not a waste stream. Look at this, like there's this whole hydrogen economy that's really being born and it's green hydrogen, right? And it's even cleaner than green hydrogen because we're not having to develop solar panels or wind turbines or anything along those lines. It's renewably generated, right? It's from renewable resources and it ends up, you know, being essentially a co-product because it's a byproduct of the process of pulling everything apart and then making these. And then, yeah, it's green hydrogen. And because it's essentially a left, the leftover bucket, for us, we can actually utilize that if we can compete with dirty hydrogen prices while being a green product. So it's really revolutionary yeah. in that way. I can imagine too that the uh, the plant itself is going to require a lot of energy and you could almost run some of it off of the hydrogen that you're generating. Oh yeah. We actually uh, don't even need to tie into the grid, right? So we all of the energy that we produce is from the waste that's coming in 
So the waste that's coming in is that's the awesome. energy for the entire system, but in a non-incineration process. So some people, you know, when they hear waste to energy, think, oh, it's like the waste is getting burned because that is the way that some places around the world do treat their waste. So that's not a wrong thought right. to have. It's just not what we're doing. I, the green concrete, um, I want to mm -hmm. dig a little bit deeper into that because to me, that has always been the holy grail of sustainability. And I've been watching companies try to make green concrete or zero emission concrete, whatever you want to call it, for years mm -hmm. and nothing ever came of it. So I'm very excited to hear from you about what you've created. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, if you look at um, a traditional concrete, traditional concrete uh, is produced uh, through the mining of limestone. Now, limestone is DaCO3. Um, so what, you, what they're after, though, is a calcium oxide. So you mine limestone, but because you have a calcium, right, you have your carbon and then you have your additional oxygens. You have one C and two O's too many in limestone, right? You're trying to turn it into cement. So what is traditionally done is you heat it up. So you use your fossil fuels to make a very, very hot environment. And in that hot environment, that C and those two O's uh, are released. So you're releasing very large amounts of, yeah, you're releasing the carbon dioxide into the environment. But then you're left with what's called calcium oxide. And calcium oxide is the cement that we're really interested in utilizing for the way that, you know, current concretes um, are utilized. So think of that then as the glue and then you mix it with big rocks and sand and water. Right. And you mix it all together and then a chemical reaction occurs. And that's what makes your traditional concrete right now. And that's why it's so emissive. The majority of the emissions are coming from the cement production, right? Making that glue, making that binder that holds everything together. You have all of the emissions, of course, from the limestone uh, extraction, and then all of the stuff that happens during that calcination process, which is the heating, right, that releases everything. So this is one of the, you know, I think you know, this, this is rough on us because concrete is the number one man-made utilized material on the planet. And if mm -hmm. you take the man-made requirements out, the only thing that we use more than concrete on the entire planet is water. That's it. So it is the second yeah. most utilized thing on the entire planet, but the way that we produce it is highly emissive. So we're kind of shooting ourselves in the That's foot, true. right? And so this isn't like we're uh, taking CO2 and exposing a, a limestone-based product to CO2 in order for it to you know, be secured there, we're making it so that no limestone has to be mined whatsoever. There is no mining needed for the implementation of these cements, right? Um, because it's entirely made from trash. Um, and in doing so, we're removing greenhouse gases, right? So for every ton of it we're making, we're removing more than a ton of greenhouse gases directly from the environment. And so this material is so superior to traditional ordinary Portland cement based products in darn near every way, it's unreal. I mean, like it's mind blowing. We tested it so many times. It was, you know, when we were first, you know, putting our formulas together and, and pulling everything out, we're like, there's no way well, that must be a fluke. Let's do it again. But, you know, after a hundred times, you're like, oh my gosh, like 
we've done something really cool. Let's let's dive in and like really figure out what the major de deltas are, right? What are the major differences? And so when you're when you're laying a normal road, let's say we're going to utilize this as a pavement, which you can't. We utilize it as pavement. When you're laying a normal road, you you know you mix your cement, your water, your aggregates together. You mix it all up in the trucks that you guys have seen. You pour it down, um, and then you wait, right? You know that the road's closed for a while while they're going through construction. And this is specifically because you're waiting for it to cure and set. And what you want to have happen is you want it to hit about 4,000 PSI so you can open it up to traffic and all of that good stuff. Uh, the industry standard for uh, concrete is our 28-day marks, right? So you're trying to hit, make sure that you're at your 4,000 PSI. On day one, we're well over 5,000 PSI, which means you can lay your material and literally open it up to traffic the very next day, right? At, uh, at you know, your one week mark, you're over 10,000 PSI. And so it's really fantastic because it's actually meets all of the requirements. It is, you know, uh, ultra high performance concrete is ultra. It is a high strength performance concrete. Um, but we make it, you know, it, at prices that you can you can substitute it out for, you know, the traditional dirty stuff. And then it has tensile strength, which normally concrete doesn't have. You know, it has flexural strengths that are like three times, three to five times greater than traditional materials. So it's, you know, freeze, thaw, ability to move is much higher. Um, so that helps in, of course, earthquake zones, things along those lines. So where have you used, where has this, has this concrete been, this, this green concrete that you're making, have you used it anywhere yet? Yes, yes. Um, so right now we use it for pavement. Uh, we utilize it for um, like sidewalk applications. Uh, we utilize it for uh, precast applications. Um, we utilize it for block and foundation, um, all kinds of stuff. So okay, well, cool. We're now so starting to dive into the possibility of utilizing it in 3D printing as well. So that's kind of the, oh, that's the new. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, the new possibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Awesome. Okay. Cool. Well, keep us posted on that because that's really fascinating. Oh, I forgot. Probably the place where uh, the industry's uh, adopted it and loves it the most is actually in the reef restoration community, which I never would have guessed. But I didn't realize a ton of concrete is actually utilized for coastal reef restoration initiatives. So you lay essentially concrete down at the place where, you know, your coral can take root and grow off of. So you're increasing all the surface area down there. But traditional ordinary Portland cement based products, they leach and they actually degrade in like saline, well, chloride type environment. They do. And yeah. and uh, yeah, they were working on testing this um, for like major reduction in leaching um, and um, and it doesn't uh, degrade uh in, you know, in the same way that uh, traditional materials do. So it's really good. It's a, a fantastic performer in uh, saline and chloride environments. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So maybe be using it for some um, sea level rise adaption measures in the future. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Port applications, walls. Yeah, yeah who knows? Yeah. We'll I don't see. know if we're going to be able to build a seawall around, you know, yeah, the entire yeah, state of Florida, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> maybe in some discrete applications. Um, okay, so I I was looking through your your bio, and uh, you were 
you were one of the youngest NASA principal investigators during your time at the agency. And then you, you leveraged your expertise in how to keep humans alive in space. You know, you brought it here to earth. And I wanted to ask you, how did you transform yourself from a space engineer to a climate tech CEO? Yeah. So I was uh, really blessed uh, in getting a lot of opportunities on the entrepreneurial side of things uh, before this. This isn't my first organization. Um, that would have been crazy. Um, but I really started to dip my toes uh, into the world of entrepreneurship uh, at a much younger age, uh, smaller businesses and things along those lines. Um, and I also was going through a grooming program with a large private space organization who was working on uh, really mentoring and grooming me into the CEO position for that large organization. So I was, you know, I was uh, really blessed in in having those uh, opportunities kind of all coalesce together. So because a lot of my experience had been, you know, uh, with or under the umbrella of the United States government, uh, branching off into the private industry realm, uh, made, I wanted to make sure that I had people who had executed at the highest level of doing mm -hmm. that around me at the same time. So um, mm -hmm. it was really building that community and getting, you know, making sure we were all, uh, all ready to go. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I mean, I've talked to a lot of people who've transitioned from, from one career into climate tech or sustainability. And there always seems to be like a turning point in their, mm -hmm. in their life or career that sort of prompts them. Um, to make the shift? Did something like that happen in your world? Yes, absolutely. Um, for me, it was uh, 2019, uh, and I lost a very close friend of mine in Panama to a waterborne illness. And uh, oh. it shook me. I mean, it, it felt like it turned my whole entire world upside down in a lot of ways. Gosh. Um, the hardest part for me, you know, was... Uh, obviously losing her was the hardest part, mm -hmm. but like trying to come to terms with the idea that, you know, before she had passed away um, and before she'd even, you know, been exposed, the biggest thing that made no sense to me at all was that I was in her home with a laptop that was helping provide clean drinking water to people on the International Space Station but she didn't have access to clean enough water to keep her own life. You know, she didn't have access to it at least continuously enough to keep her own life. Mm -hmm. And it just, it gave me a different lens to look at everything through because I was like, what kind of a human am I where I've, you know, where I have developed solutions specifically for this problem, but have worked on only installing them in places where what 50 to hundred people are ever going to have access to utilizing those and yet mm -hmm. you know somebody in the dead vacuum of space has access to you know these resources and yet somebody that i directly care about doesn't like what is that the type of world that i want to live in i i don't think so and is that the role that i want to play i don't think so um and so it i just started really looking at all of the projects i was working on through you know a new lens and it was you know, okay, great. I, I love developing stuff for space applications. There's a massive need for this, but are we doing what we're supposed to do in terms of reaching back and making sure that these technologies get to the places where they're actually most likely needed the most? And so 
that was really my impetus. And, you know, like a part of me, Lisa, just feels like, man, like, is it, you know, like we hear all the time about, okay, yeah, you know, there's uh, a lot of issues all over Africa in terms of access to clean water, right? We, we learn and we see the, you know, the different, you know, like bits and pieces, you know, on National Geographic's about these major issues that everybody's facing. But for whatever reason, like that didn't, wasn't enough to push me over the edge. You know, I, it really selfishly took a major loss that directly yeah. affected my own personal life to make that, mm -hmm. that switch happen. And, you know, it's like, man, I wish we could learn those sorts of lessons and feel those sorts of feelings before that. But mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know how, you know, maybe it takes something like that for each of us on a personal level. But if there could be yeah. a way that we could all experience that, I think we'd be living a very different type of life than we live today. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, you know, with the, the metaverse and and virtual reality coming into play, maybe there'll be somebody out there that develops these experiences so people can have that more. It's a visceral experience and, and it's all, it is, it's human to have, to have your perspective, your perspective shifted so dramatically when something affects you personally. That's a, that's, that's a natural human experience. And um, yeah. how do we yeah, how do we bottle that and replicate it so that we don't have to wait for all people to have each each of these little individual experiences would be wonderful. Yeah, um, for sure. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like um, I like to imagine that there's a version of this universe where you know Gua gets to stay alive and we're developing these solutions for people. Mm -hmm. But you know, I guess in some way, I brings me a teeny bit of comfort to think that, you know, maybe her loss is what spurs us as an entire society to start doing things more sustainably. Is that worth it? I don't yeah. know. But, um, but, you know, it's something at least to make things a little more comfortable. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 sometimes comforting to think that we all come to this reality to serve a purpose, but it's not comforting if if that purpose doesn't seem to be. That was what I'm looking for. I could go in a very deep philosophical rabbit hole here, <laughs> <laughs> but it's this okay. idea of like you, you want to make you want to make meaning out of something tragic otherwise what was the fucking point yeah no i'm not kidding and like that's the big thing too right for me it's like okay when i was in the space industry i felt like what i was doing was meaningful like you know i was helping push the frontier of our understanding of humanity and we were exploring you know how the universe around us you know works and 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 where our place was in it you know and how we originated and and i think that's important and i do find meaning in that but when you know when i start looking at things through a different view it's like okay maybe my definition of meaning isn't the same anymore you know mm -hmm. it's maybe mm -hmm. now i'm you know i've changed i know that i've changed my definition of meaning you know now when i'm up i'm like okay the work that i did today the work that i did in the last hour you know the work that i'm doing currently 
how many people are positively affected around the world because of what I'm doing in my time and my moment here, yeah. right? And so for me, it, that is Yanay. I mean, that's what we're that's what we're here doing, right? It's like okay, which each of these facilities that we're building, we can scale to remove a billion tons of greenhouse gases a year per facility, which means at that scale. We need about 40 facilities worldwide to remove all of the anthropogenically released carbon dioxide or the human released carbon dioxide on the planet. You don't want to have zero carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is important for healthy plants and other processes of course, plants on the planet. Need it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to be double where we're supposed to be. You know, it's like, how do we throttle right. that back to a healthy place? Because if we can get that into check, it's not only positively affecting them, it's positively affecting their offspring and and out for as many generations as we can conceive. So it's like, oof, in our definition of meaning, that number, like we're looking good over here, you yeah, know, like, that's... and that's why we're targeting that. But if you can think of something that's more meaningful and has more impact, we would be working on that. But this is why we're working on this today. Don't you just love it when conversations about technology evolve into philosophical ones that ponder our existence? I do. Uh, maybe space is just naturally uh, one of those topics that lends itself to it because you look up at the stars and you're reminded about how infinitesimal you are, like just speck of dust in the cosmos. And I mean, for me, it, it sort of puts things into reality, right? And, um, that's, I just, I'd love philosophy in general. And I so appreciate Brittany for being willing to go there with me. And I really love how inspiring her story is too, because she reached this brick wall in her career and she just turned it into a road just by looking at it from a different perspective, different angle. Um, and, and now she's doing work that could have a tremendous positive impact on the planet, our spaceship Earth. You know, she said at scale, they would only need 40 of these plants around the world to reverse the CO2 emissions being, you know, put out there that are pushing us towards this climate crisis. That's boom. That's huge for me. That's in a way it's like, oh, let's just do that 40 times. Boom, done. Uh, but obviously we know it's a much bigger challenge than just creating 40 of these plants. Uh, but her pilot demonstration is going well and she's proving out everything that she set out to do. So it's super exciting. And I look forward to reading the developments as they come out because I'm, I'm a big fan of Yume. So earthlings, keep your sensors pointed at Yume to see how this, all this stuff materializes. And we will see you again on another turn of this beautiful blue green space flower. Mm -hmm.